Hi, you're listening to the Food Adventures Podcast Season 2, and I'm your host, Beth Fuller. This is a podcast dedicated to all things food, from recipe ideas to interviews with chefs, producers, purveyors, farmers, and people who just love culinary adventures like myself. So join us here on Fridays to explore the world through the lens of food, and together we can share some yummy food, some laughs, and I welcome you here at my table always. And if you're ready, let's go on a food adventure together starting right now. Hey everyone, you're listening to the Food Adventures Podcast. I'm your host, Beth Fuller, and this is episode six, season two. If you're new to the podcast, thanks for being here. If you've been here a while, what am I going to say? Don't take notes. I've taken all your notes. Go to my website for everything, elizabethrfuller.com. And while you're there, make sure you check out my amazing food and product photography. It's what I do for a living. So if you're a brand or a person or a person who has a brand, or anything for that matter, and you need photos, I am your gal. Shoot me an email. You've got questions for the podcast. If you want to be on the podcast, you need culinary sleuthing of any kind. Shoot me an email. Let's go on a food adventure at gmail.com. And of course, tag me in all of your food adventures on Instagram. I love seeing them. Let's go on a food adventure. All right. Let's go on a food adventure, you guys. All right. Okay. Here we are. Another very cozy week in New England has passed. It's so fucking cold. It's so cold. I'm not going to sit here and whine about the weather. I have tried to do that already for three takes, uh, and I've deleted them all. uh, So I won't. I won't. uh, I'll spare you. I will spare you my whining. And I was thinking, I'm like, okay, what did I make this past week that I can tell you guys about that's like worth talking about or worth making? And I realized I'm like, we have been eating because it's been brutally, I shouldn't say brutally cold. It's just been, we're in this like one storm after another kind of cycle here in New England. And it's a little bit of like wash and repeat kind of vibe. So I have been making a lot of cozy things um, for for dinner this week, this past week. One of the all-stars was a skinny taste recipe. Um, if you're not familiar with the food blog Skinny Taste, she's amazing. Her name is Gina. She has a handful of cookbooks. They She started out, I don't know if she started out as like a Weight Watchers kind of gal, but uh, she... Definitely has a lot of great Weight Watcher friendly recipes if you're into that. She also has like keto whole 30 recipes. She has, she's got a ton. She's been doing this for a long, long time and I've been a huge fan for many years. And uh, she's got a lot of great cookbooks with a lot of great recipes in them. So highly recommend her. And they're pretty uh, straightforward, not too complicated kind of recipes. And big payoff because they all taste damn good. So she has this one that is kind of her riff on an Italian wedding soup, but with a little bit more veggie in it. And instead of, you know, a small pasta like a ditalini or even like a very small uh, elbowy pasta, whatever kind of pasta you like, as long as it's small, kind of works in Italian wedding soup. She uses, and it's turkey meatballs, sorry. 
she uses store-bought fresh tortellini. I found some beautiful tortellini from Whole Foods that were imported from Italy and they had porcini mushroom in them. So I was like, yeah, one more, one more vegetable thrown in there. This Todd and I made the soup last Saturday. It was such a winner. Um, we ate it three days last week. It was so, so, so good. Okay. And another recipe that I made that I thought was really, really, really good. So there's this cookbook called Simple by a woman named Diana Henry. She's from the UK. Um, she's a very famous uh, recipe, uh, cookbook author. She, I know she does a lot for um, publications in, in and around the UK. Um, her recipes, the cookbook's beautiful. I know she's published a few of them. That's the one I have. And um, the recipes have all been really, really simple and tasty, just like... <laughs> Just like promised in the uh, title of the cookbook. Anyway, she has this beautiful, and if you are a ride or die risotto fan, you know, this might not be the risotto for you. I'm okay to switch my risotto up. So this one is like almost a breakfast risotto, sort of. Stay with me here. It's a Parmesan risotto with not a ton of parm in it. And it has bacon lardon and a like poached egg on top. Oh, it was so good. It was so good. And I mean, your girl loves a poached egg. So there's that. But then the risotto itself, it was just really, really tasty. Not the whole dish wasn't overly filling. Um, I made a simple salad on the side with it as well. It was unbelievably good and with risotto I mean there's a few tricks and keys to making a really good risotto time time is one is one of them patience um getting either orborio rice or I'm gonna pronounce it wrong it begins with a c it's like carnali rice canali rice <laughs> can't I can't pronounce it I'll put both in the show notes if you can get the one that starts with a c again I'll put it in the show notes um I recommend that over arborio so just saying always when you make risotto always have your broth that you're putting in very slowly one ladle at a time into your risotto uh really ripping hot so you're gonna have that in a pot on the stove next to the risotto you're making and um, the other thing that my friend Marissa taught me was when you initially, after you saute whatever aromatics are going in the risotto, say it's like an onion, uh, if you're putting some shallot in, whatever, with the butter and oil, then you put the rice in, get that all, sorry, I just hit the mic, get that like all coated with the butter and oil and the, and the garlic or shallots or onion or whatever you're, you're sauteing. And like stir it, keep stirring it. And it's going to start turning from this like translucent -y color to more white. Um, and then you start ladling in the broth, literally maybe a quarter cup, a third of a cup, whatever, however big your ladle is, one ladle of like boiling hot broth at a time just until it gets absorbed into the rice and then another one and you just keep going real slowly it's it's a labor of love but it's not I mean anyone on Top Chef who makes this 99% of the time goes home 
So if you're in a cooking competition, I would not make risotto. But um, that said, I, I just, this was a really, really, really good, really easy recipe. Um, Todd and I are not eating a ton of cheese right now. And so we, it was a great way to like get some big, like bold, cheesy, air quotes, flavor with the parm, but not putting a ton in because a little goes a long way. Um, and the stock I used, you could use vegetable stock. You could use whatever. I just used a chicken stock that I had on hand and it came out so, so, so good. I will add both of those recipes to the show notes, but we're not here to talk about that. We're actually talking about something else today. This is our part two of the, the conversation from last week with Carl. So hold on one second. Let's get that fun music going. Oh, okay. That's so much better. Gotta have the music, right? Yeah. Yeah. So in case you missed last week's intro, which I really don't think you did, but just in case, we have a part two of our two-parter conversation with my friend Carl from the UK. Carl is very passionate about all things self-sufficiency, homestead living, raising animals on his farm, raising children on his farm. No, I'm kidding. He is a dad though. Um, About growing his own food, foraging for many things other than just mushrooms, which we'll get into. And so, 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 so much more. So please, please welcome back to the podcast, Carl from the Self-Sufficiency Hub podcast. So would you say that you guys eat what would the split be like 80% of everything you produce and maybe 20% you supplement from the market or is it, or is it more like, is it like 90, 10? No, I would say it's probably around 80, 20, maybe 75, 25. That's amazing. amazing. Because yeah, but there's things like, you know, tomatoes that we do grow ourselves. We got hit really bad with blight this year. Mm. So we basically, I think we managed to harvest like one carrier bag. So we've bought an awful lot of, of tomatoes, mm. tin tomatoes, because we don't want to suddenly not be able to eat Italian food or sure. whatever it might be. So, you know, we're not, we're not, we're evangelical a little bit about doing it and trying it, but we're not, I'm not evangelical about having to, I, I, I did a podcast episode once called hair shirts and takeaways. Mm. And it was to say, you know, sometimes we have a takeaway and I don't want anyone to think we don't. It's not, it's, we're not doing this like some kind of hair shirt. It's, it's because we love it. It's because we love it and the benefits are there. And we are not shy to buy something from a supermarket. If we want it, if we want to eat it, it's just, we don't have to for so Mm. much of our food, you know, very rarely do we have to buy meat very rarely indeed uh, and we grow probably this year we've probably grown 75 percent of our potatoes we ran out of garden potatoes wow. only a few weeks ago now from the summer and we would have more if it wasn't for the blight that we had this year in the uk which was really bad so mm. i couldn't grow a second crop so uh, that's the only reason we're not using potatoes from the garden now but things like pasta and rice we tend to buy although sometimes i will make pasta we do we do a deal with our we've got a local bakery so we trade eggs with the local bakery for big bags of flour so it means i can make all my own sourdough and wow. make my own pasta and of course every single one of those ingredients is either grown or bartered for something we have produced so 
that's really, really awesome. And yeah. in September, I did a, a bit of a challenge, you know, a self-sufficiency challenge where I only ate things that I was producing myself or that I could trade. And mm. I was really, so many people have done these little challenges and, and then you, you hear them talk about them and they're like, yeah, so we, we just bought spices and uh, pasta and rice and wow. uh, ketchup. Those are the only things we bought from the show. And I'm like, well, no, I didn't buy anything. You know, I went, I went the whole hog. Wow. I, I even used salt that I harvested from the ocean. And oh my we, gosh. Yeah, I went the whole month, but I did it not as a, a hair shirt. I did it as a bit of fun and to see if I could do it and what I'd be eating. And I tell you, the variety was just crazy. It was absolutely brilliant. Of course, there were the, the meat and potatoes and vegetable dinners with some gravy that I could make completely self-sufficiently. Mm -hmm. But also I made a take on a pork griot, which is mm -hmm. a Haitian dish. Um, are you familiar with the dish? Uh-huh. I'm yeah, salivating so thinking about it. I love it. I love it. But of course, we didn't have any citrus. So instead of that, we substituted pear juice from pears from our tree. And oh. for the for the acid, I used a rhubarb reduction, which just worked oh. phenomenally, phenomenally well. And I have to say it's as good as any pork griot I've ever eaten. Another wow. night I had another night I had uh, crayfish spinach and goat's cheese uh, ravioli that was all made Holy myself you know oh my so, gosh so, and and this is when and this is when i was really testing myself you know this is when i wasn't allowed to reach for anything not even pepper or cumin or anything yeah and, and even so i had all these amazing dishes throughout that month so you know I think, and, and this is going to sound a little bit self-serving and a bit tooting my own horn, but I think honestly, toot, toot. Beep, if, beep. If, if most people compared their diet insofar as, you know, just a menu of what they eat throughout the year with mine, I think most people would swap. Genuinely believe that, you know, we eat oh, really, yeah. really well. And yeah. it's just the variety, the quality and everything is just, I uh, just, I'm just really, really passionate about it. I can't believe you made your own salt. I'm still hung up on that. Did you take seaweed from the ocean near you and then just lay it out in the sun and collect the salt from that or? No. So we, I do, I did collect some seaweed and I used that to, I dried that out and uh, made a powder with it. So really it's a great powder for adding to stocks. It's mm -hmm. really high in umami, depending on what, what type of seaweed you get. I'm a big right. forager. But for the salt, you, you literally, you want to make sure you're getting, anyone can do this. It's a great project if you've got kids and you live near the coast. Make sure you're accessing a clean piece of coast. I don't know what you what, what the process looks like for finding that out over there in the US, but here in the UK, we've got pretty tight reg, uh, regulations and you can just find out what the quality of the water is in, in every area of our coast. So go to a decent, high quality water area and just harvest some water and then strain it through a cheesecloth or a muslin or something really, really fine to strain all the grit out and then just boil it. And it's a crazy, it's something like, it's a while since I did it. So, but it's something like one liter, just one liter of water will yield seven grams of salt, which I think is your weekly oh, allowance. Oh my goodness. So yeah, you don't need very much at all. And it's really easy to do. And of course, if you've uh, got a little fire pit or something, you can do it outside, then it's going to cost you nothing either. And it's wow. not going to 
humidify up your house. So yeah, no, it's a really easy pro- and a fun project to do with kids. And the only difference between this salt and the commercial salt that you'd buy is it didn't have any of the additives, the sort of yeah. anti-caking agents. So what you will find is if you put a pot of it on your side, it will draw in the moisture from the air and go soggy and you'll have to sort of re-dry it in a dehumidifier every couple of weeks. But other than that, or you can use it soggy, of course. But uh, fascinating. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Now, so we've touched on a lot of the things that you um, raise and have and, and grow. But, you know, I do know that you raise, as you mentioned at the top, animals. And yep. I, you and I have talked offline about this. I, I have to ask, when you first started raising them, because you're not vegan, you're not raising these to be pets. They are, um, they're used in your daily diet. And when you first, and I'm not vegan, and if anyone is mm-hmm. vegan, great. We we have no issue with it either way. You and I are really neutral. I think both can, we can say like, if you want to be vegan, that's awesome. Great. If you don't, yep. great. Um, was it hard not to get attached to the, I don't, I couldn't do it. I, there is absolutely <laughs> no way I could raise I just couldn't do, I couldn't do it. I know myself. <laughs> I cried. I watched the new season of Queer Eye for the, 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 it's not called the Queer Eye for the straight guy anymore, but it's called Queer Eye. It's out on Netflix and I was watching an episode yesterday and they went to this farm in Austin and this woman saves all of these abused, abandoned animals. And I started crying just like as she's hugging a pig. Like I couldn't, there's <laughs> no way. Like, how do you not name them? How do you not get attached? Well, okay. So there's, there's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. And, um, I, th- I think the first thing I will just quickly just go on record and just share my thoughts on veganism. Cause I think that that's important. Mm. I personally think that if you are a vegan and you are a vegan for ecological reasons or for ethical reasons, I think that is really, really firm ground to be stood on. And I salute you. And I think that is fantastic. I personally choose not to be a vegan, but I also believe that the ground that I'm stood on is also very, very firm ethically and morally. And I'm more than happy to explain that in some depth, maybe in a bit. But so animals here, we... So we do have animals that are not for meat. We've got goats that we milk and we've got chickens, obviously, that lay eggs. But the byproducts of those things are other animals. And... In addition to that, we also keep pigs, which are solely for meat. And Mm -hmm. we had our own breeding program. So we had a male and a female and we had them have litters to basically become pork. And I have to say, so the, the first thing I think just to get out of the way is that I don't really have a lot to say on the the how do you cope? How do you do it thing? Because it was just not really a big issue for me. Yeah. And. I don't know why. I don't know why. And I know that it is for some people. For me, I just think, and and again, not just here, Beth, not just in this conversation talking to you, yeah. but when I'm talking to anyone, be it publicly or privately, I am never, ever, ever trying to tell anyone else what they should or shouldn't do. And I'm never being judgmental. All I'm ever mm-hmm. doing when I'm out in public is I'm sharing my experience. I'm sharing my Absolutely. journey. sharing the, And for me... I have always thought 
that there was something a little bit dishonest about, for me personally, eating something if I wasn't prepared to kill it. And I think that that little sentence is the crux of a lot of the issues that we see in some of our commercial farming methods, some of our Mm -hmm. intensive farming methods, because so many people are quite happy to eat meat so long as they don't know how the sausage was made. And that's, you know, that's almost a prerequisite of them eating meat. The second they need to know about it, that perhaps they would go vegan as well. Personally, I made the decision to do something slightly different. And that is to say, well, I'm going to create environments within which I can raise super, super happy, healthy animals that live a net positive life. And what I mean by that is a life which if the animal had been given the choice, for instance, our pigs, they get to run an acre and a quarter of woodland. It's their perfect natural habitat. It is literally pig heaven. And Mm -hmm. Not only that, at the end of their life, they don't get carted off in a trailer. There's no trauma there. They are literally, I do everything myself. I do the slaughter and the butcher. And they're literally, they'll come and eat an apple and then there's nothing. Mm-hmm. And for me, I think given the choice for that animal, because that this is the choice, this is the only choice there is, it's would you prefer to have that life or no life at all? Mm-hmm. And for me, it's a real no brainer. It's a, such as, you know, I've given them a net positive life. They've had this amazing, fantastic existence where all of their needs are met, where they are under no stress, no pressure. They just perform all of their natural habits and just live a lovely life. And then at the end of it, there's, you know, nothing. There's just peace. And for me, I don't think that could, for me, that's about as ethical as it gets. Yeah. I'm not saying it's better than veganism, but I'm saying it's as ethical. And uh, Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm one of those people there is, I, yeah, I totally agree with you. I, I am ashamed to say that I could not do that but I still continue to eat meat. I try to source it from people like yourself who I'm very grateful for that can do that. And I also limit the amount of meat that I do eat. Um, And I give you a lot of credit for being able to do that because I could not, I couldn't, I just, I couldn't, I couldn't. And (laughs) I, I okay, I have to ask, has there ever been one animal that you couldn't take over the rainbow bridge no no honestly (laughs) i'm such a my 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 wife says that i'm some kind of path and she's not sure what yet yeah right sociopath she's not sure what type of path i am but um i just i i i think i'm such a i'm to a fault i am a logical consequentialist and what i mean by that is I just, I just see the choices in front of me for what they are. Mm-hmm. And it is, I don't ever see that I'm not doing something that's in the animal's best interest because that was the choice. The choice mm-hmm. was this life or mm-hmm. no life. So right the way through, the animals have been honestly right at the top of our priorities, their welfare. And I mean that for every single animal we have here and i've spent a ridiculous amount of money on vets bills for animals that if if we were looking at it with any kind of commercial mind at all we wouldn't have but that's not how we look after our animals we don't we don't put a commercial hat on Mm -hmm. to 
mm-hmm. to, to, to make decisions about our animals. We just make animal welfare decisions to make decisions about our animals. And then on a higher level, we've already made the decisions that put in place the infrastructure that we have these animals coming through our systems to be processed at some point, whether it's pigs, whether it's goats, whether it's chickens, whatever it might be. So mm-hmm. there is no point at which I'm thinking this isn't the right thing to do. And for me, that's enough, I think. Yeah, and I I think it's very beautifully said. And like you said, if anyone had any idea of what a factory farm looks like, I mean, there is, it it is a a living version of hell for these animals, if not worse. And I mean, it's so unbelievably disturbing and sad. And so the life you're giving them is a million times better when the end result is the same. And, um, so my hat is off to you. And I think you, you really did say that in, in in a beautiful way. Uh, and we have a few more questions and then we have to dive into a couple of listener questions. So, um, I have to ask when you guys were starting this whole greener lifestyle and you were reducing your carbon footprint and you were trying to figure out how to manage your waste because managing your waste is a massive part in this as well, right? Like you are yeah. growing your own stuff. You're, you're eating your, your livestock. You guys are really trying your damnedest. <laughs> what do you guys do? Or do you have any tips on how you also then manage waste too, on top of all of that? Yeah, so I'm going to say that there is a three a th- three parts to this. So the the first thing to think of really is I, I suppose you asked me a question a little while earlier mm. and I never actually answered it because we got sidetracked but about <laughs> permaculture. Oh yeah, okay. And I never I never really I never really got into that and but I think this slots in here quite nicely. Perfect. So the idea of the idea of permaculture is about using natural systems. And if you go out for a walk in a woodland, you'll see there is no waste. When a tree falls down, it's not waste. It is going to be decomposed by fungi and become effectively compost. It's also going to be a habitat for other things. Lots of things serve multiple purposes. So permaculture is all about learning from the natural cycles and using nature's abundance and rather than us coming in and sort of digging everything up and saying and imposing our will on a space and saying this is what you will be it's more working with it and giving gentle nudges that over time just create compound effects that give you more and more and more and more abundance year on year it's about working with the water cycle it's about working with the weather working with the natural patterns working with the animals that visit your space so if you have a problem we we, we're told in permaculture that the problem is also the solution so if you have too many of something then what is the solution to that is to find a use for them and permaculture as it's far too encompassing for me to kind of sum it up in a minute or two but for for instance you spoke earlier about how you ripped out your uh tomatillo plants and then you tilled the ground and what have you well in permaculture we would certainly shy away from tilling because we've there's something called the soil food web which is this web of organisms below the ground it's Uh mycorrhizal fungi and it's nematodes and bacteria and all these things that work in symbiosis with your plants so you 
none of these animals and the fungi, they can't photosynthesize. They can't do that. They rely on the plants to photosynthesize and deliver sugars, which they then tap into in the roots. And in return, they deliver nutrients to your soil and to your plants. And they also break down things and help build your soil health. So another way that they work is mycorrhizal fungi so basically there are massive organisms under the ground of fungi which stretch can stretch for miles mm. and they will literally tap into the roots of plants and derive the sugars that they need from the plants and in return they can actually sense a deficit in nutrients in a certain plant and they can sense a surplus in that same nutrient in another plant and they can deliver it like a metro system and deliver nutrients from one plant to another it's how trees communicate with each other and every time we break that soil down we're forcing it to start from scratch again and oh, that's shit. why I that's why we okay. <laughs> well most people do most people yeah. do but that's why we need to add fertilizer we, we've uh, never we've never added fertilizer to our ground here, not once since we've been uh, here. All we're doing is we're we're allowing the soil to do its own thing, and then we're adding. And here we go. This is number one of my three things that I okay. said. We're adding compost every year. So mm -hmm. every year we've got those waste products, be it your tomatillo plants, be it your kitchen waste, be it the peelings off your vegetables, be it the bedding from your animals. If you're keeping chickens, be it the waste products from those animals. That's all going into our compost heap. And then every year, usually in the spring, we'll add a layer of compost over the top of our whole bed. And that's what we're planting. And that's all we're adding. We're never, ever, ever buying in fertilizer. Never, never had to do that. And wow. our soil fertility is through the roof. And so that, that's the first thing is to say, if you want to reduce your waste, you must be composting. And even if you live in a really small property, you, there are so many systems that you can get now. You can get little tabletop composters, little worm bins, little compost things in 24 hours. There's a solution for you wherever you live, however you live, there's a solution mm. for you. And if you're lucky enough, I, uh, here in the UK, it's uh, countrywide. I'm not sure. I think it varies state to state out there. Perhaps you, you'll let me know. But I think state by state, it might vary, but they will collect your garden waste and your food kitchen waste. And that will all now go and be composted, which you can then buy back for your garden. Or of course, you can just do it yourself Ooh. and not pay someone to take away your waste and then pay to have it brought back. That's right. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's the first thing. Secondly, animals. So if you've got chickens, dogs, Mm -hmm. pigs whatever you've got you mm -hmm. know they're a great use of spare food of leftover food so there's no such thing as food waste here and then the final arm really if you want to reduce your waste is you don't reduce your waste at the bin you don't reduce your waste at the recycling center you don't you reduce your waste at your purchasing point mm. by making the sensible decisions there that's how you really reduce your waste because we try, and again, this is permaculture thinking, we try to create as many closed systems as possible. So whenever we eat food, it passes through our body, we pass it and then we flush it away down the toilet. Well, that's energy that we're flushing away and we will have to bring something in to replace that, whether we're capturing energy from the sun in photosynthesis of our plants or whether we're buying food from the supermarket. But of course, what you could do is you could build a compost toilet 
and you could reuse all of that energy. And the same goes for all of our systems. Whenever we bring anything in to our property, we're trying to bring in things that are going to add energy to our system. So things that come in paper or cardboard packaging, that's fine because that's just compost. That's going to feed my soil. That's mm. not a waste product. But if it's coming in plastic, then that's something that is going to have to go to waste. So that, I think is how we look at waste is just the idea of trying to create these closed systems. And the same would go with water. You know, every time you flush water down the sink and you don't reuse it, that's water that you then need to bring into your house again. Whereas if you can capture gray water, use it for watering your plants or washing your car, mm. then that's less waste. It's less that's going down the sink ultimately. So just by thinking of everything we do as a closed system mm -hmm. and thinking, are you bringing something into that system that isn't going to work within it, whether that's the packaging on your toothpaste or whatever it might be, then, then what you're doing is you're effectively buying waste. So Ooh. we just try and reduce that as much as we can. That's, that's that uh, fascinating. Yeah. That is absolutely <laughs> fascinating. And it's making me second guess things I'm staring at, even in the room that I'm in that I'm like, Oh, there has to be a better way for some of the things that I've purchased. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, for that's sure. awesome. It's really making me think. All right, let's dive into a couple of listener questions. Yeah. So, Jonathan from Instagram writes, I've always wanted to learn how to forage mushrooms, cook with them and not die. Jonathan, I hear you. How did you learn how to do this? And do you have any tips for a newbie who wants to get into it? Yeah, 100% I do. So, <laughs> and uh, not die. I, I, you, they yeah, can't die because yeah. one one bad mushroom, Carl. And yeah, yeah. One, one, one bad Instagram comment and uh, it all yeah. comes tumbling down. Uh, so, yeah. The, the, so, what I would say, so we'll take some broad strokes. First of all, there are tens of thousands of species of mushroom. Yep. There are tens of thousands of species of really rare mushrooms. Every time I go out foraging, chances are I'm going to find a really rare mushroom that I won't have found before. Many of these we can't tell apart without microscopy, without using a microscope or some other kind of lab equipment. So if you go out and the first mushroom you see, you stop and try to identify you're on a hiding to nothing. You can't come at it that way. There's just too many, just, forget it, forget it. So that's the first thing. That's the first broad stroke. Stop okay. trying to identify every stop mushroom trying. you see because okay. yeah, that's the first thing. Second thing is, just like any type of foraging that we do, whether it's plants or mushrooms, you need to think about habitat and you need to think about season. So mushrooms generally will have a season and they're all different types of mushrooms will grow at different types of year. This is a great time of year right now to be foraging for velvet shanks here in the UK and for oyster mushrooms. Both of them mm. are great winter, winter mushrooms. So just because it's winter, you know, at any time of year, there are mushrooms out there. But of course, we do think about autumn being the most prevalent. Mm -hmm. So think about where am I going? Am I going to grassland or am I going to a woodland? And I'll get to why you're going to think about this just in a second. Mm -hmm. But, you know, think about the habitat you're going to think about the time of year. It's no good looking for a mushroom that grows in the summer on grassland in the winter. If you're in a wood, there's no point in doing that. So think about where you want to go. And then Google is your friend. And just Google the simple phrase, what common mushroom, what common edible mushrooms mm -hmm. grow and then put your location, grow in California, grow in Texas, grow in Scotland in winter. So 
do that. And then what you're going to have is you're going to have a list of, and YouTube's fantastic. You, you'll, you'll no doubt have something pop up, you know, the five easiest mushrooms for beginners. And that is where you start. So you start with one or two edible mushrooms that tick the following boxes. They have to be abundant. There's no point searching for a rare mushroom as your first one, because okay. it's going to take you longer to find it. There are lots and lots of really, really common ones. So find an abundant mushroom. Secondly, Find a mushroom that is super, super easy to identify and learn it. And then number three is find one that's going to be in the habitat and the season that you're going to. And then once you've done that, or, or even better, find two or three that tick these boxes. So what I will say, I'm in the UK, obviously, I'm not a global mushroom expert but i'm really good on the uk edible mushrooms so i will say here in the uk you know there's probably 10 that i could rattle off that have that you only need to learn two or three different distinguishing features for and you can discount anything poisonous hmm. and i've done videos on all of these on youtube actually i don't okay. know if anyone's can i is it worth mentioning the YouTube channel? Uh, yeah, and we'll link to it in the show notes. Yeah. Okay, so uh, Self-Sufficient Hub is the name of my YouTube channel. If you go there and if you then go to my playlists, you'll see there's a mushroom foraging playlist. And, and there must be 15 or so species there that I have obviously just done for the UK. But it'd be really easy to just cross-reference and say, is there anything dangerous that grows that looks mm -hmm. like X? where you mm -hmm. live and just make sure there isn't. But the, the idea is get yourself a list of two or three, just start with two or three edible mushrooms that are really easy to identify. And they are out there, giant puffballs, nothing looks quite like them. Uh, there's, there's, there's too many for me to just list them off now, but there, there are plenty out there. And just try and learn those two or three and then mm -hmm. go out looking for them. Put the miles in and you might not come across any in your first season and then the season will change. And then you're looking for a different two or three and then a different two or three and then a different two or three. And then you're back to the season you started in and perhaps you've gone a whole year and not found anything. I think it took me about a year before I found my first edible mushroom that I was able to identify on my own. <laughs> that you and weren't then, scared to eat. It took you yeah, a year before you I were like, I, if I eat this, I may die, but there's a more likely chance I won't. No, but before I was 100% <laughs> sure. So <laughs> never, God. never, never munch on a hunch. No, but, never uh, munch on a hunch. That's a good sound by a girl. Yeah. But what you'll find is that the following year, you'll go back to your reference and you might add another couple of species. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you're not looking for two or three, you're looking for 15. And it does cascade and you will start to see things in books. And if you're on foraging groups on Facebook and Instagram and places like that, you'll see what people are finding at the moment. And you'll think, hang on a minute. I recognize that one or you'll be out and you'll spot something that wasn't on your list, but you are familiar with it from the research you've done. And then you'll get your phone out with you are in such a privileged position these days to be able to learn these things. Because when I was learning, there was like two books. Yeah, that's it. That's yeah. all there was. Now, you know, you've got every mushroom book ever written in your pocket. And so, you know, the, the opportunities are just so much easier to self-teach now than when I self-taught, when I first was looking for mushrooms. But there is no, there's no shortcut beyond 
putting in the miles you know there's a lot of walking and a lot of yeah coming up with nothing but eventually you'll find that all of your knowledge and your information compounds on top of each other and it really does start to pay you back dividend i find new edible species that i've not found before every single year now without fail because i'm just immersed in it and if i spot something out the corner of my eye it's one i've seen in a book somewhere and something's telling me that's one you want to just uh, look up. It's not, you know, don't walk past that one. That one's worth looking mm. at. But when you're first starting out, if you try and look them all up, you'll just, uh, yeah, you won't get very, very far, very anywhere very fast, shall I say. Yeah. And Jonathan, it, you may want to see if there's an expert in your area like Carl that maybe you can contact yeah. and throw some some coin at and you and that expert could go for a walk in the woods together uh, yeah. as a newbie because, um, there's no, there's though, no substitute. There's no, no substitute. I, I lead foraging walks and yes. the, I see people come on with absolutely no knowledge whatsoever and yes. they leave where I was after doing it for two years. Exactly. It's, there's no substitute. It's a yeah. small investment in a learning experience that, um, most likely will not result in an ER trip. So I think that is a wise, <laughs> wise investment, Jonathan. All right. Amber in New York city writes, and this is a good question because we just talked about it a few minutes ago and we'll circle back to it. I would love to do more from the environment in my daily life, but it's so overwhelming. I live in a major city. I don't have any outdoor space. What advice do you have for someone who wants to start living a more sustainable life on a very smaller scale? Grow some herbs in your windowsill. Ooh, That's where I would start. Love that, that is 100%. That is 100% where I would start because it will serve so many functions it's going to in just a small way but in a way that could possibly snowball it's going to connect you to where your food comes from it's going to you know herbs are really expensive for what they are and there's there's very few you can't grow on your windowsill and you're going to get that joy of putting it in your food and i don't know what sort of lifestyle you lead but you would be surprised what you can do with a small space and then who knows after that, you know, you might get mm -hmm. a small, uh, what about a, a strawberry plant or a couple of strawberry plants in your windowsill as well? You know, there's, there's the peppers, peppers are a great one to grow mm -hmm. inside or even some of the dwarf tomato plants. Mm -hmm. These are all things you can grow in a windowsill quite happily. And you may or may not be stunned with the results. And for me, it's, it, I, I love the question because I'm very much about anyone can do it. And I'm very much about anyone can grow their own food. Now, no, you can't be, you're, you're not going to be raising goats and no. milking them in, no. in your flat. That's not practical, no. but you could be self-sufficient in oregano. You could mm -hmm. be, um, you know, self-sufficient in whatever it is you choose. And that is such a great feeling. And when you use them and cook with them, it, you're going to want to use them and cook with them more than you would normally. So perhaps you'll find yourself cooking from scratch a little bit more as well. And you won't waste them. You will cherish them and you will feel that connection to them, to the food. And it, it allows you to learn where your food comes from. Not, I, I don't, that sounds really condescending. I didn't mean it in no. a condescending manner, but no, no, no. you know, by, by doing, you know, you can all, we all think, yeah, well, we know where food comes from, you know, it's grown or whatever, but until you've done it yourself, you really don't know. You don't know what's involved in a loaf of bread, you know, what's really involved. If you try and, as I do, always try and go a step further back and 
you know, rather than buy the bread, bake the bread, rather than buy the flour, grow the wheat. Mm-hmm. And it's not something I've done, but it's something I've got a great interest in. And as soon as you start thinking about things that way, then you really start to appreciate what has gone into putting that loaf of bread on the shelf that you're going to take home, that you're going to spend next to nothing on. It's so cheap. And it starts to it starts a cascade of questions, really. How is it so cheap? Well, that's an interesting question, isn't it? And mm-hmm. maybe it's one we should spend a little bit more time on. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And, you know, I know here in Boston, I'm sure London might have the same thing. And I, I, I really do think New York, uh, certain neighborhoods might have this, that there are community gardens that if you do have, a, if you can afford it and the plots are open, that you can buy a teeny tiny little bed in a community garden and you could then grow something in that way too. And and the other thing you can do is, you know, when when in doubt, shop at a farmer's market instead of a major grocery store, um, yeah. maybe even once a month, in addition yeah, to yeah. growing these herbs. And you could also, like you mentioned before, getting a small tabletop composter, composter, that even if you were then growing a few things that maybe then you want to compost a little bit of your, your food waste and then add that soil to your herb yep. plants and your tomato plants. And so I think those are all wonderful suggestions, Carl. Georgie from Instagram writes, I'm not sure if you have children or not, but we do. My partner and I are trying hard to live a more eco-conscious life and we would like to get our children involved. If you do have kids, do you have any tips on how to get them more excited about this? Yes, points. <laughs> a point system. <laughs> so a point system, I love it. Yeah, so uh, I have, my eldest is 16, my youngest is 12, and uh, one in the middle. And basically, they all have gadgets, they all have iPhones and Xboxes and all those kinds of things, but you're only allowed access to the internet, to the Wi-Fi here, from 6.30pm, oh sorry, not yeah, from 6.30pm in the evening, um, you're allowed to use the Wi-Fi and you have to have it off by 10.30 a.m. I'm talking weekends, a okay. bit, in in, bit less in the week. Now, of course, that's not enough. So the availability of points that they can earn are, is offered to them. And one point gets them 10 minutes extra Wi-Fi. So if they earn six points, then they get another hour's Wi-Fi. And it's a really, really good system. And of course, you can use the uh, the score charts and offer points for whatever you wish and use it as a great nudging mechanism to guide your children in the direction that you think is best for them because that's our job isn't it as parents is mm. to guide them in in the what we consider to be positive directions so not only is it a good way of sort of limiting the wi-fi time but you, and of course you can uh, you might find if they've if they've just been spending too much time on the Wi-Fi, then perhaps there's some inflation and they have to earn, you know, they have to work a lot harder to earn those points or however it might work in that particular week. But for instance, you know, in our house, it might be you, you can earn four points if you go and collect all the eggs. And that's not a, a small Ooh. job. You know, it's quite a quite a quite a big job, but that's always available. And, you know, lots of little things like that. And it's a really good way. I think it encourages two or three different things. You know, firstly, it allows you to keep a tab on sort of screen time 
Oh, yeah, I have to, you have to enforce it. You have to, I mean, our kids are incredibly trustworthy, but you know, you can't, the, with any mechanism like this, it only works if it works 100% of the time. Right. As soon as there's sort of gray areas, it doesn't work. But, um, you know, you can use it to enforce Wi-Fi time. You can also use it to encourage certain behaviors. And I think it's a great introduction to commerce, if you like. You know, it's the first job that they'll ever get. And it's a good way of them managing their own time and deciding, I want to earn something and this is how it works. So we're really, really happy with that system. We're really happy with it. Good for you guys. That's a great, that is a great suggestion. I'll put it in the show notes. Last listener question, Richard from Instagram writes now... <laughs> This this tugged at my heartstrings, and I think this question's hysterical. I love all things British, from Downton Abbey to the British Baking Show, the holiday BBC shows. I can keep going on. It's a long list, and I'm afraid it all involves TV. I have always wanted to come to the UK and visit. I'm not a really a big fan of large cities, so I was thinking about planning a trip to the English countryside, but honestly, I don't know where to start. I know this question has absolutely nothing to do with sustainability, but do you have any thoughts on places someone should visit when they want to see the picturesque English countryside. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you're really spoiled for choice because anywhere outside the cities yeah. and towns, you know, I could list places that the Peak District is stunning. North, uh, North Wales, Snowdonia is stunning. Cornwall is stunning. But then so are every, every rural area is really, really attractive because we've got that beautiful mix of because we're an island because we're so densely populated it means that all of our rural areas none of them are vast expanses of thousands of acres of fields or mm -hmm. rather a thousand acre field they are all little tiny villages with streams and things and it's uh yeah you you, you can't really go wrong i no. have to say no i agree with you i was going to suggest cornwall and north wales as well i mean and, you know, once you, I would do a week in the English countryside and then I would do a week up in Scotland as well, because you're right there. Why not see both? I think both are very beautiful and both are very unique. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, again, you're right there. If you're already yeah. making the flight over the pond, just go see both. But yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I will put all those in the show notes. All right. Last few questions. So I ask everyone, what are you making currently at home right now? Oh wow! I know. Uh, right, is this? Does it have to be food? No, it can be whatever you want it to be. Okay. Uh, well, at the moment, I am making some clay. I foraged some clay from a rock <laughs> slide at the coast two days ago, and I brought some home. Never done it before. Um, so I've got a load of clay outside in a bucket of water that I'm soaking and gradually breaking up, and then you pass that. I've never done it before. But you you pass it through a uh, successionally smaller series of filters, basically, to get like a slurry, dry it out, and then I'll have clay that I can actually make pots with. So I'm doing that as a bit of an experiment. Do you know somebody with a kiln? No. Okay. Hey, that'll be <laughs> step, step that two, buddy. Down the line. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. <laughs> awesome. I used to do pottery a, a lifetime ago. Um, I took a few classes in it and I absolutely love it. It's again, a very meditative experience. And I can see you falling head over heels in love with this because it's meditative. You get your hands dirty. I mean, it's really going to check a lot of your boxes, Carl. I think sure. this is a really good thing for you. Okay. And is there something new that you've eaten recently that you've totally fallen in love with? Oh, goodness me. Uh, 
If the answer is no, that's fine too. I mean, but I have a feeling there might be something that you've eaten that you were like, oh my God, how did this not be in my life more? Or well, I don't know. I think I've had such a varied diet for such a long time. I'm struggling to think of anything. Oh no, I've got it. Yeah, parsnips See, told and you. flour. Parsnips coated in flour oh. for Christmas dinner. Rather than just, I don't know, do you eat parsnips out there with I Christmas do. dinner? Yeah, so just part boil them and then coat them in flour and put some herbs and spices, whatever you want in the flour, but coat them in flour after you've just part boiled them, then in the oven. And parsnips have gone from something that I eat because I, you know, because they're on the plate to something I look forward to. And they're just amazing that way. And it's so crispy and beautiful. Ooh, I love that. All right. I'm totally going to do that. So now promote yourself. <laughs> How can people find you? How can they get a hold of you? Talk about your YouTube channel, your, your podcast, your website. Ooh. Hear it all. Okie dokie. Well, uh, I'm uh, I'm self-sufficient hub everywhere. So I am the self-sufficient hub podcast where I talk all about not necessarily being self-sufficient, but working towards self-sufficiency, growing your own food, making your own soaps, all of those kind of self-reliance skills and just the, the idea of being more connected with where your food comes from, sustainability, all of those topics. I am also self-sufficient hub on YouTube where my channel is sort of like a combination of things, really. There's half of it is sort of how to's and I might teach you how to identify some wild edible plants or mushrooms, or I might teach you how to make goat's milk soap or sourdough. Uh, and then the other half are just vlogs where you get to see the property here and what we're up to and uh, meet the goats and everything else. And uh, then there's the selfsufficienthub.com, which is my website, which is a little bit neglected. It's not neglected. I do update <laughs> it, but it's, uh, it's just, you know, you need a website. So I have one. And uh, yeah, but I mainly use that for my foraging courses, which I lead. If you're in the Southwest UK and uh, you want to come along on a foraging course, then uh, get in touch. My email is selfsufficientcontact at gmail.com. And I think that just about covers it, Beth. Awesome. I will put everything in the show notes. All right. Well, very, 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 very last question. If COVID wasn't a thing and if you had all the money in the world, where are you going and what are you eating? Oh my goodness. I'm probably going to somewhere like Mongolia. And I want to eat where, whenever I go anywhere, I want to eat the most authentic, not the stuff that I don't want to eat anything you can get from the tourist areas. That's not what I want. I right. want to get the stuff that the the grandma is cooking for her family on a Tuesday evening. And uh, that's what I want. And I want, I try to get as close to that as I can. So the, you know, the shops, I, when I sit down, when I sit down to eat, when I'm abroad, I don't want to turn around and everyone be speaking English. I want to turn around and everyone be speaking the language of that country because that's where they're from and that's what they're eating. And, and that's what I get a kick out of. 100%. And I, I've done now 54 episodes of this podcast and you are the very first person to say Mongolia. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that. Carl, this was such a blast. I am so grateful to have you in my life and I cannot wait to talk with you more and come visit and you guys come here. We're going to, it's a long-term friendship, my friend. So thank you again yeah, for coming course. on. Pleasure, Beth. Thank you for having me. All right. I'll see you soon. Bye, buddy. Cheers. 
Carl, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed part two of our conversation together. I will link all of Carl's information in the show notes on my website, Elizabeth R. Fuller. If you have questions for the podcast or you want to be on the podcast, shoot me an email. Let's go on a food adventure at gmail.com. And of course, tag me in your food adventures on Instagram at let's go on a food adventure. All right, you guys, this is the end of yet another amazing episode together. So make some yummy food together this weekend and lead with kindness. It's a weekend filled with love, whether you're alone, together, with a lot of people, feel the love. So happy Valentine's Day and I will see you next Friday. Bye.